Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crescent Podcast. It has been such a fun, rainy week here, and I'm maybe a little different than most people. I absolutely love the rain, so I've kind of been in heaven, just staying super cozy, going on some rainy walks, and despite everything that's going on in the world right now, there's so much news around this pandemic, everything related to that. And so this week I wanted to share just a little bit of lightness and fun. So the interview today is with Jennifer Palmer and she is the founder of an amazing non-toxic eco-friendly skincare company called Osea and they're actually based right here in Southern California in Malibu. And I have loved this company for so long. They are absolutely an incredible company. They have incredible products and I really, really love their family history. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear a little bit about how Osea even came about and how truly the way and the values, the philosophy that Osea sort of lives by and represents as a company is something that Jennifer and her family have held to for generations. So not only do we get to hear their truly magical, mystical background as a family, Jennifer really walks us through everything we need to know about non-toxic skincare. We touch on some of the common terms used in the skincare industry, how actually quite poorly regulated the skincare industry is, what some of the common toxins and chemicals are in common products that should be avoided, what some of their harmful effects may be. And then we dive all into the Osea products and just the thoughtfulness and even intuition that really goes into every single product they create. And I'm particularly excited for you all to hear the story behind how they source their seaweed, which is a main ingredient in, I believe, all of their products. So again, it's For me, it's such a magical story. I had such a wonderful time chatting with Jennifer. I'm so grateful she was willing to come on and share her knowledge, her experience, and truly her passion for skincare with all of us. So I really, really hope you guys enjoy this. If you do, share it with someone who needs to hear this information. And if you are loving the Crescent podcast and these interviews, I would love it if you took a second to leave a rating and or a review, just sharing your thoughts so that other people who are looking for information like this can find it more easily. So thank you so, so much and enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the Crescent podcast and just sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your history with us. I'm so excited to dive into this. 
Well, I am so happy to be here. Thank you. So there is a lot to cover in the realm of skincare, non-toxic skincare. But what I love about your history and the history of your company is just truly how authentic your mission is. Your family has been living out this mission long before the company even existed. So if you don't mind giving us a little bit of a family background, you know, to how it relates and then how you specifically got more into skincare and then created Osea. Okay, happy to do so, but you have to promise to interrupt me if I get a little too detailed, okay? Because you know how it is. Once you start on a family history, you just kind of crank it up and you can't stop. So just kind of gently interrupt me with a question. And also know I've raised, you know, three teenagers, so I know what it's like to be interrupted and I can roll with it. So, (laughs) Okay, great. I, well, I like to say that every good story uh, starts with a grandmother, and mine certainly does. And my grandmother was, uh, um, let me say, she was one tough woman, um, borderline tyrant. I hope none of my other relatives <laughs> hear that. Probably they won't. She had some tyrant tendencies. She was a powerhouse, and she actually came to the U.S. at age 16 by herself from Germany and, you know, with something like $5 and ended up getting married to a fellow German immigrant, had six children. And one day um, my uncle became very ill and she felt that a chiropractor saved his life. So my grandmother's response was, I love doing her German accent, though. I need to um, I need to become a chiropractor to take care of my family. So that's exactly what she did. She kind of just very calmly told my grandfather that she was moving from New York City to Davenport, Iowa, to go to Palmer School of Chiropractic. And she did. And my grandfather <laughs> took a leave of absence for a year just to make sure like what was really going on here. And he came back and resumed his job as a New York City policeman. And she became one of the very first women chiropractors, graduating in 1919, over 100 years ago. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? And so so and in growing up, I actually thought that all grandmothers adjusted your neck on the front porch before they entered the house (laughs) until I met Michael Carney's grandmother. And I was like, why isn't she giving us adjustments? And that was my my first clue. I love that. I love that. (laughs) So anyway, she became a chiropractor and, you know, the Great Depression came around and she was trading for food and antiques and all sorts of things, but continued to treat patients. And she fell one day and ended up tearing a ligament or doing something. It was never really quite determined what it was and ended up in bed flat on her back, of which I heard she was pretty unpleasant because she wasn't used to being restrained in any way. And one morning she told my grandfather, I had a dream that the ocean would heal me. And I want you to carry me down the street because they lived in Beechhurst, New York, and put me in the water. And he paused, but... No one really ever argued with her. Also, just as a side note, 
the night that the Titanic sank, she had a dream that the Titanic sank and woke up screaming and in hysterics. And and then, of course, and my grandfather thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to take her to a mental hospital and put her in a straitjacket. And then, of course, after that, the news from the Titanic came in. So whenever my grandmother said, I had a dream, there was complete silence in the room. And everyone is thinking, oh, please, I hope it wasn't about me. So when oh she basically <laughs> like, oh, no, she had a dream. Oh, God, what is this? So she... um. My grandfather, of course, didn't hesitate to respond to her request, even though it was January and it was New York City in the Long Island Sound. And he took her down, carried her, put her in the water. She was a tiny woman and she uh, felt just a little bit better. And he continued to take her down every day. And there was seaweed on the beach at that time. And she would pack it around or take it back home with her. And within a few weeks, she was back to walking, felt great, but they continued to swim every day of the year in the water, except, I love this, my grandmother's definition of a bad day was the ice was too thick to cut because the Long Island Sound actually can freeze in parts. So, yeah. So it was a little horrifying if you went to see the grandparents in October and November because they would want you to swim down at the beach with them. And you're just like, oh, please don't make me go in the water. And we actually have some pictures on our website. And, you know, they're old black and white pictures because people would take their picture on New Year's Day or Christmas Day. Like, oh, and there's the Rochelles swimming. That was their last name. And um, (laughs) they started one of the very first polar bear clubs. But it's so funny, when you look at the pictures, you think they're standing in sand. But if you look closely, you notice they're wearing rubber boots because they're actually standing in the snow before they get into the water. So growing up, even though I grew up in between Toledo, Ohio and Geneva, Switzerland, nowhere near the ocean, but in my family mythology, because you know how all families have certain mythologies that we all think that everyone believes, but it turns out it was just your family that believed yeah. it, right? Well, I always knew, even though I live nowhere near the ocean, that the ocean and seaweed is a source of healing. It was just into my DNA. I mean, it was just something I believed, even though I really did not have the opportunity to swim in the ocean very often. So my mother being the daughter of a chiropractor, um, had was obviously very much influenced by her and always um, was very conscious of the foods that we ate. We used to get special order peanut butter from, I think it was called Walnut Acres in Pennsylvania. Um, that first day of kindergarten, which by the way, I did the exact same thing to my daughter on her first day of school. My first day of kindergarten, I went to school with German brown bread, um, a baked sweet potato, you know, (laughs) apple and um, some kind of, you know, hard German cheese. And everybody around me had bologna on white bread, which was my secret fantasy for years. All I ever dreamed of was a bologna sandwich, (laughs) which I've still to this day never had a piece of bologna. I think I'm going to (laughs) probably... I think I'm going to end this life without ever having eaten bologna. But um, 
is it a thing anymore, Baloney? Just curious about you know, that. I... I'm trying to think if I've ever even had bologna. Yeah, okay. So maybe I'm really dating myself here. Maybe, maybe, no, no, maybe in specific uh, circles, maybe. Right, okay. Well, let me just qualify, you know, I am 65 years old. So um, <laughs> so that's how I know about this bologna business. But I was just raised, I literally learned how to read at the grocery store because my mother always insisted on reading all the ingredients on the labels. And the comments that she would make in front of other people at the grocery store were pretty embarrassing to me. One of her favorites that she would love to go on a rant about was uh, Wonder Bread, how it builds your body in, I don't know, seven or 11 different ways. And she'd say, that's not true. There's no nutrition in that. And I mean, she was constantly making these declarations of, this is unhealthy. This is bad for you. This isn't food. So that was kind of the world I grew up in. And that's that's crazy. What year was that? I mean, she was well, so ahead of her time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I went to kindergarten in 1958. So, yeah, oh long, long gosh. time ago. Oh, my gosh. I love her. <laughs> yeah. Now, my mom and grandmother were both pretty outrageous characters. But, again, it really – I, you know, what you grow up with, you think – is normal because that is the mythology and the family patterns that you're living in. And I always like to say, here I am, you know, it took me till my sixties, but I am finally in style. I was always the weirdo, but now I'm finally in style. Who knew if it happened Mm -hmm. to me, it can happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So now coming to your journey in particular, you, Mm -hmm. you grew up in this sort of, holistic sort of avant-garde family Mm -hmm. but then how did that for you specifically turn and that energy get put more towards skincare that's another story I (laughs) would I would like to um say something that I always use as a self-descriptor that I'm truly the least likely person to have ever started a skincare company my idea of a great vacation is not even brushing my hair for a couple of weeks, which means I have to pick out the dreadlocks, but I don't care. Um, I own three tubes of lipstick and that's it. I don't wear makeup. I mean, I've never been kind of a girly. Um, I've never I've never been into like perfume, skincare, makeup, none of that. And uh, and the way that I so. I think it's really interesting how life takes you on these journeys. And the older you get, you find yourself really coming full circle. So I studied, my major in college was physical anthropology, um, specifically um, primate dentition. But I also worked in archaeology. And I was lucky enough to work on a few archaeological digs. But the problem with most good digs are that they're in very remote locations. So after doing that for a bit, I realized here I am in the middle of the Negev desert and I'm waking up at 3.30 in the morning so we can work between 4 and 11 before the sun is too harsh, sleeping in the afternoon and then hanging out in the um, food tent with a bunch of old professors, and that was it. And I thought, ah, this is awful for my social life. Although (laughs) 
I would like to say if you give me a couple margaritas, I can do some outstanding Gibbon imitations because um, (laughs) one of the professors had specialized in Gibbon and he taught me different Gibbon mating calls. So, you know, but, but that was the extent of my social life. So I came back to the U.S., And I asked my grandmother for advice. And this was more the late 70s. And I said, well, what should I do? I I think, you know how when you ask someone a question, you kind of know what the answer is. That's why you choose to ask that specific person. So I was quite convinced that she would say study acupuncture. I mean, study chiropractic. And she didn't. She said, I think you should study the healing arts. And I looked at her. Uh, what do you mean? What are, what's the healing arts? And because at that moment in time, chiropractic had gone very mainstream in order to get more accepted by the American Medical Association. I mean, it's since done a complete 360 and it's just this beautiful, you know, you know, diverse healing modality. But at that moment in time, it was rather one pointed. So I took her advice and I started studying the healing arts. And, you know, I began with um, shiatsu, acupressure, stumbled into polarity therapy, which I loved because it encompassed so many different healing modalities, such as Ayurvedic, um, Chinese medicine. And then after that, I landed in cranial touch work. So I kind of went deep into all of this. And ironically, and I never even realized the correlation until maybe about five years ago when I was doing an interview, how I got diverted into skincare was I had a beginning chiropractic student give me an adjustment. Um, It was known as the fifth lumbar roll. And um, he shouldn't have given it to me. He actually pretty much ruptured my fifth lumbar disc. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, and when I got off the table, I saw stars or actually right when it happened, you know, in cartoons, like when a character oh gets hit, I saw stars Whoa. and I thought, Oh my God, what just happened to me? And I walked Whoa. around in a daze, went home, took a nap because I was in a state of shock and woke up with searing sciatica down my leg. And I was on my back and uh, really unable to work. You know, I was doing body work with people, so I could no longer do that. And at the time, um, I was also part of a kind of a new age healing group based in Southern California And we had pulled our resources and bought um, a destination property called Murrieta Hot Springs. Oh, my gosh. Do you know Murrieta Hot Springs? Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. And um, it was was an iconic property that had been um, built in, like, the early 20s. And I don't know if you recall the Olympic swimming pool very similar to the one at Hearst Castle, designed by the mm-hmm. same architect, Julian Morgan. And because I could no longer do body work, I sort of just got thrown into the spa building right after our group had purchased it. And they said, well, why don't you figure out something to do with this building? And I walked in the building and 
I, I guess I, you could say I had a sheltered childhood. I'd never seen a bat before. There were bats in that building. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I that is how it was in such a state of disrepair and disuse. But I looked around that building and I saw that there were 32 private mineral baths. There were two separate mud bath buildings. Oh. It was a beautiful old Spanish architecture, probably built in the 20s. And something in my brain just switched on. It was almost as if I had this instant synthesis of all the knowledge I'd ever studied in the past. And my brain just flooded with ideas. So, and I just thought, wow, this is the center of the property. It's the heart of the property. And this was in, um, let's see, maybe 1982. And uh, there weren't really many destination spas at the time. I mean, of course, now the spa world has grown exponentially. But this was so iconic because of the soaking pools with the natural mineral water. And that's kind of how it all began. And I thought, well, I need to create treatments and experiences. So um, I was very lucky having gone to school partly in Geneva, Switzerland. I It was such an impression when I went on. We, we used to go on field trips that were not your typical school field trips. You know, like, oh, we're going to go map the the glacier on, you know, at Mount Blanc, or, oh, we're going to the perfume fields of grass, or, oh, we're going to Greece for a two-week antiquity tour. You know, I mean, the field trips were epic. So, um, but I, I'll never forget that moment when we went across and we were studying um, the perfume industry and looking out at those fields of lavender and all the different flowers and seeing how they distilled essential oils. So I had been exposed to that, you know, when I was 13 years old. So all these different experiences, plus I traveled extensively um, doing archaeology. You know, I I made it all the way to Afghanistan at one point. Mm -hmm. So it was just this coming together of so many different areas of knowledge that I just thought, well, I think we should, um, I think we should do something with Ayurvedic medicine. So I went to Little India, um, which is a part of LA and bought a bunch of Ayurvedic herbs and mixed them with some different clays. And I thought, well, let's just paint people with this and do Ayurvedic (laughs) body wraps. And everyone liked that. So I said, oh, great. Well, why don't we try, um, why don't we try using salt and Dr. Bronner's soap and scrubbing people down and add a little oil into it and call it a skin glow rub. So I just, I just kind of kept making stuff up and everything that I made up, everybody really loved. And I would have to say that honestly, my personal favorite treatment and the one that always got the most response was, um, we had these individual mud baths where people would submerge and then they would start with a private warm mineral bath and then this hot mud bath. And I recognized, especially from my grandmother, hot, cold, I thought this is too much heat. We need to cool people down. So we had, after our guests would go from the mineral bath to the mud bath, we would then have them lay down, you know, on a massage bed and we would wrap them up in ice cold sheets 
literally we would have big coolers with ice cubes. We would dump in um, a bunch of Bach um, rescue remedies. So they'd have a, you oh. know, and we would wrap them up really tight like a mummy, you know, like a papoose. Cause, and then we'd put um, a lemon scented cold washcloth over their eyes. And people would be kind of squirming for the first 30 seconds. And then they would go into the deepest state of relaxation. They would just drop down so deep. So it was almost if I was just on this lucky streak, you know, an idea, it felt like it would just drop into the top of my head. And I, and I had this playground where, Oh, let's try this. This will be fun. So then people started saying, well, what about facials? And I'm thinking facials. Uh, I wash my face with olive oil or water, and then I put olive oil when it feels dry. So I was hardly an expert on any kind of skincare, to say the least. And so I thought, well, I should find some skincare products. So I kind of put the word out, and different companies came and tried to promote their skincare products to me. And because we, it was, we were one of the few games in town in terms of a destination resort property that had this huge spa. A lot of companies came, and here they are talking to someone who really doesn't know anything about skincare. But every product pitch, I would just pick up the bottle or ask. Sometimes it wasn't even listed. What's in here? What are the ingredients? And as I started to read the ingredients, I thought, well, wait a minute, this looks like it's all synthetic derived. And what what is this stuff? And how how does this affect our systems? Because in Europe, you know, we were taught in the um, late 60s and early 70s about transdermal penetration. So I came, that information, even though of course it was known, it wasn't so much promoted as much in the US. And so I kept thinking, well, what about the effects of transdermal penetration with these products? And then trying to find out what is this stuff, I literally had to order special books from the FDA through my local library. Because believe it or not, there was a time when there was no internet. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, I applaud you even more for that determination. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because I'm thinking, what is this stuff? And so I'm starting to read about some of the contraindications and they're just nothing too frightening, but highly illogical things like causes contact dermatitis or ulceration. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, why are we putting this stuff on our skin if it's drying out our skin? That's just so illogical. And then when I learned, um, that most skincare products spend very, very, very little on the actual ingredients. And it's all about the packaging, the marketing, the advertising. I mean, the margins in cosmetics are 94%. And at that time, yeah, ouch, wrap your mind around that. Don't you wish you ran your podcast on a 94% margin, right? Yeah, exactly. Every every business ever. Every business, yeah. And so I just thought, wow, now this was an arrogant thought, but it was also came from a point, a place of activism. I thought, well, I could do better than this. I, and it was arrogant because 
it's not easy to do better, but that's what I've been working on to do ever since that moment. And I also felt it upset me because at that time, skincare was marketed strictly to women. And even to this day, we make less money to every man's dollar. And here we are having products marketed to us at prices that are highly questionable. They're selling us a dream and we make less money and they prey on our insecurities. So in a way, it was almost a response of, I can do better because someone has to do it. And it took a long time because I had that revelation in the early 80s. And one of the first things I did was um, blend some essential oils together that we used at the spa, and it became really popular. Um, I found a few products from, you know, different little various lines, and we started to put together those products and use them in facials, and suddenly our facials became incredibly popular. And then, you know, because this was like your basic new age healing group, you know, with, with the leader, all that kind of stuff, you know how those groups go, they fall apart. And, uh, the resort got sold, eventually um, became a private Christian college. And um, as much as I love to read, I am a bookworm. When I heard that they turned my beloved spa building into a library, I was like, oh, drive a dagger through my heart. Oh, man. Yeah, I hope you guys had pictures or something. Yeah. So I'm thinking it was such a magical building but mm. after all of that fell apart in the late 80s i i was kind of at a new crux in my life what am i going to do and i had this moment of i'm going to start a skincare company and i thought no wait a minute no you're not talking to me but it just it was a, it was a little bit i mean i kind of threw myself down on my bed with this i'm going to start a skincare company thinking, no, that no, this is not me. But I always say that Osea chose me. I did not choose mm -hmm. Osea. You, I'm just like floored by the level of intuition in your family. <laughs> yeah, we roll in the intuition department. <laughs> and that you guys listen to it. I mean, you get these pings or whatever you want to call them. And look at what happens when you follow that intuition. I mean, it's amazing. It is powerful, for sure. And I think my daughter might have the most intuition out of all of us. So she's okay. pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. So then, so you got this. OC is over here like, yeah, you're going to start a company. Yeah. And then so I'm thinking, but I'm a mom with two kids. And then I became a single mom. And I went back to my private practice because, you know, luckily – going back to what threw me into the spa in the first place, my sciatica did heal up, took about nine months. So after I left the spa, um, I went back to my private practice. And um, what I did was I always took little baby steps. And it's something I always like to share, especially with women, because, you know, women, we tend to be the multitaskers. And if we're wives or mothers very often we have to do many different things at once and we don't get to have that luxury of just one pointed concentration. And I just did little baby steps because you do that for 10 years and it becomes a huge shift. 
So I started studying um, green chemistry. I started looking at different ingredients, how they would work with their efficacy. Interestingly, I did not study other skincare lines. And I'll never forget, I, I went to some beauty conference. I'm not a beauty, I'm not a conference person. I'm, I'm just too much of an independent sort. But I went to this one beauty conference that was, it was an afternoon, which was way too long for me. And there were different speakers. And I'll never forget this one speaker. Keep in mind, this was the jargon of the late 80s. He kept saying, you have to think outside the box. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, wait, is there a box? I didn't even know there was a box. I mean, I was just so detached from it all. And for me, it really worked not studying the industry. I just wanted to create what I felt that I would actually use, which I think was really powerful because I'm not a big cosmetic skincare user. So if I'm interested in using it, chances are, most people are also interested in using that product. Yeah. So let's dive into, because I, I do really want to touch on the seaweed thing and how you oh, guys yeah. source it, because it's awesome. But before that, let's just dive in real quick to non-toxic skincare. I, I want people to understand, first of all, why it's so important okay. that we're paying attention to what's in our products. And then also just sort of breaking apart the, the skincare industry, how the regulations work, what some of these terms mean? Well, you know, there's a lot of terms like um, clean beauty, which, by the way, didn't even exist um, when I started Osea 24 years ago. Um, there's clean beauty, there's natural, which there's natural derived. I think natural derived is natural derived is actually a chemistry term, you know, um, chemicals are either synthetic derived or natural derived. And I, I think that is an excellent descriptor. descriptor. Um, Non-toxic beauty, that's a good way of putting it because, you know, look, hemlock is natural, but, you know, it's toxic if you, you know, consume it. So non-toxic, I think, is probably one of the best terms, you know, um, organic, yet you need certification. And that's a very complicated subject too, because I mean, I have actually witnessed myself, you know, when I source ingredients, I've been, I've been staring at fields of um, lavender and the farmer says, well, do you want the certified organic, which lavender from right here, which is twice as much because of all the documentation, or do you want the field right here, which is it's the same, you know, next to it, same lavender, it's just not certified. So I think probably if you're going to choose non-toxic is the best. And I think the reason why non-toxic is so important is because of the exposure. We Every year, more and more synthetic derived chemicals are being introduced into our lives and into our world. And we're literally just taking in this co cocktail of we don't even know what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And applying it to the largest organ of our body. <laughs> yes, which turns out can absorb things. So who would have thought? Yeah, who would have thought that exactly? And I think an important distinction to make, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, is 
as far as I understand, in Europe, when a new chemical or ingredient is brought to the market, the company actually has to first prove that it is not harmful. Whereas in the U.S., anything can be brought to the market and it will stay on the market until studies prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is harmful. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's extremely accurate. I mean, the EU actually bans over 1,300 chemicals from cosmetics that are known or suspected to cause like cancer, reproductive harm, birth defects. Meanwhile, the FDA has banned 11 chemicals. So right there is a good place to start. And I think that probably, you know, probably the biggest offender, I mean, there's so many different ways you can look at this, but I'd like to just kind of focus on fragrance because, well, first of all, the fragrance industry, just like the skincare industry, is pretty much self-regulated. And so many chemicals of concern hide under the label of fragrance, like almost like 4,000 chemicals can are used in fragrance. And even just that single, like you're, you bought that beautiful bottle of perfume and, you know, they had the beautiful commercial and the, the supermodel or, you know, the bottle with the curves. I mean, the bottles are beautiful. I will give them that. Um, they should just sell them with water, my yeah, own yeah. opinion. But, uh, but just a single scent can contain anywhere from 50 to 300 chemicals. And when you breathe something, I mean, it just goes right in through your lungs and into your body. I mean, at least if you're eating something that's not so healthy, at least you have the liver to process it. So um, there's no state, there's no federal, there's no global authority that actually regulates fragrance chemicals. And um, I think it was, I'm not sure, it was either the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners or the um, Environmental Working Group. They did a sampling of 140 products, personal care products, and three quarters of the toxic chemicals in those products came from fragrance. So that's, so I mean, and I, I mean, I have a funny fragrance story. So when I was in the second grade, but it, it turned out great for me in the end. But when I was in the second grade, I had a teacher um, who literally dumped a bottle of cheap perfume on herself every day. And no one would play with us in the schoolyard because we all smelled because she smelled, the classroom smelled. I would come oh home God. and my mother would make me stand like at the side door, which you couldn't, it was hidden from the street and take off my clothes before I entered the house. And she would take them down and wash them. She wouldn't even let them sit in the laundry basket because, you know, we were, well, we were the freaks in the neighborhood, obviously, but it stunk. And because of that, I developed such an aversion to fragrance, which is probably a huge influence as to why I never got into makeup, skin, care products, all that stuff, because I hated the smell. So mm. I'm lucky enough that when I smell synthetic fragrance, nine times out of 10, I get a headache. And I've even resorted to, you know, when you're on an airplane, which, um, you know, when they come along and they want to sell you the perfume, you know, that in-flight, those longer-haul flights where they're selling you stuff. Yeah. And when they're coming down the aisle – 
I start coughing and say, I have asthma, which I don't. But um, I said, I have asthma, like, please don't spray near me. And everyone's like, oh, okay. But at least I've saved myself. So I've always hated perfume and synthetic fragrance with a passion. But I think it led me on my path. Yeah. And so can, now can you break down a little bit what some of those, the chemicals in the fragrances and also just the chemicals in most skincare, personal care products, what are some of the things that they are actually doing? How are they harmful? Why well, should people avoid well, them? Well, I mean, according to animal studies, chemicals in fragrance can cause cancer and reproductive problems. They're also, they also contain endocrine disruptors, which are probably the most dangerous because they mimic human hormones and they, endocrine disruptors can have effects in even the tiniest of doses. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, I plead with women, throw out your perfume, or if you can't bear to throw it out, use up that last bottle and you're done. Keep the bottle, but you're done. And, you know, again, women, and, and I hate to keep going back to women because I like to qualify. I love my husband. I love my son. (laughs) I mean, I, I I mean, I'm not a, a man hater, but yeah. you know, women have, we have the greatest exposure because the average woman uses 12 to 16 personal care products a day and teenage girls use even more. And I just, um, and I cringe when I see mothers painting their little girl's fingernails. I'm thinking, no, don't do that. I mean, it's like we have to reduce exposure because we really don't know what this huge cocktail of chemicals is doing to us and how it's affecting us. Mm. And the whole problem is the cosmetic industry, it's an eight in the US, it's an $80 billion a year industry. Mm. And guess how much the FDA has what their budget is to, to regulate this industry? Eight million. And they have oh, less wow. than 30 people. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's very token. You know, wow. yeah, so it's like, and the FDA doesn't even really have any true legal oversight because they're acting on the, what is it? The Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. It passed in 1938. Well, that was a long time ago and it hasn't even been updated since 1938. And it's like two pages long. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and, and it really just means that they have, you know, they can regulate adulterated or misbranded products, but that's about it, you know, and they can't even require, just as you said earlier, they can't require companies to submit safety data before they market a product. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. it's the Wild West, wow. but it's our health. Yeah, and I think you know, it's easy for people to brush off some of these things because when you say something as general as, oh, it's an endocrine disruptor, maybe it doesn't connect with people, but um, especially for women, things that have these synthetic hormones that are messing up our own hormones. I mean, this is increasing our chance for cancers, so many other things. And then a lot of those um, synthetic ingredients I know, and even some of the natural ones too, mm-hmm. they, they're they cause irritation, they cause rashes. And we just think about what is that really at the end of a day, it's inflammation. 
And yes. then our body is under that chronic inflammation, mm-hmm. all sorts of other illnesses, you know, sort of, it paves the way for them to come in because your body can only fight so much when it's just constantly fighting that battle with all the products. Yeah, we're under siege. And so many women, especially women in their late teens and 20s and 30s, these are women who are of reproductive age. And there's so many of these synthetic derived ingredients that are having an effect on the endocrine and on the system and on the reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I also, I often hear how I've heard this from so many pregnant women that once they become pregnant, the smell of perfume makes them sick. And I, I think yeah. that's interesting. Their bodies are communicating something to them. Yeah. Like this is dangerous. Yeah. Keep it away. Right. Whoa. So now walk us through Osea and okay. your products. What makes you different? Well, what makes us different is probably I, that I started so long ago. It actually took me about 10 years to um, really put together my line. And you know what I was saying earlier about taking baby steps? You know, it's it's like if you want to write the great American novel, but you're way too busy to do that. Well, if you write one page a week in 10 years, you're going to have over 500 pages. And that's kind of what happened to me with Osea over a 10-year period. It literally took me three years to come up with my name. I wanted a name that really conveyed our mission. Osea actually means ocean, sun, earth, atmosphere, the elements. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I wanted a name that also looked good on a bottle because that's important, (laughs) you know. Um, And the funniest part was I was instantly drawn to wanting to use seaweed and essential oils. And I thought, what an interesting synergy between land plants and ocean plants. And I didn't even connect it back to my grandmother until after I launched the line and I was doing a training for about 30 people and I had this aha moment of, oh my God, this is why I'm using seaweed because of my grandmother, you know, and her influence. So um, I love the synergy because seaweed is so rich in vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, trace elements, has antiviral properties, you name it, and essential oils, botanicals. I mean, my philosophy with Osea is that you take, I like to formulate with a wide range of ingredients because I feel like I'm expanding the antioxidant profile. I know that recently the trend has been five ingredient products, which is, it's an interesting concept. But to me, if I'm going to use jojoba oil, which is an absolutely fantastic oil, um, especially because it very much mimics the sebum on our skin, well, why not infuse it with seaweed? Why not, why not add, you know, this antioxidant or that antioxidant? So it's like making a salad. I want to have a rainbow of colors in my salad. And that's really how I approach formulation. And so it's so funny because when beauty editors will put out the call, oh, we'd like to do a story on turmeric. Check, we have it. Oh, I'd like to do a story on beta-glucan. Oh, check, we have it. I mean, almost any beauty story when they want to profile the new it ingredient, we've already been using it for over 20 years. 
it's never just been about one specific ingredient. Seaweed is our kind of our base. It's it's like the broth. It's it's you know that rich mineral antioxidant everything. It, it, I guess you could call it like the soup broth. Mm-hmm. And then on mm-hmm. top of that, you know, I I'll use nearly anything that I see of benefit rather than just limiting it to a few ingredients because each each product or each raw we call ingredients raw materials so each ingredient has an antioxidant profile so the more ingredients you use the larger the antioxidant spectrum you have in a product and so often and again i don't know if this was cut off or not um beauty editors will be doing a story and they'll say they'll put out the call oh we want to do a um story on beta glucan or copper peptide or seaweed or whatever and it's always oh yeah check we have that product modest ingredient oh we have that matasuki mushroom so for me it's all about using a variety of products and it's also about making the product active i mean if i'm going to use a skincare product i i wanted to deliver and do something not just and I think that was one of the things that I was really up against in the early years there was this conception of oh if it's a natural derived product well that doesn't mean it works it means it smells good or it feels good but that's about it yet in reality natural derived products with natural derived ingredients can be extremely active and that's always the goal I mean if you're going to use an OCA product, we want it to deliver for you. Mm-hmm. I love that. What I always say about OCA is it's the skincare company that checks off all the boxes for me because previously to finding OCA, it's like, you know, you've got this company over here that has the perfect branding and packaging. And then you check out the ingredients and maybe it works. Maybe it even mm-hmm. does what it says, but you're like, but this is also doing X, Y, and Z to my body, which I don't want. Right. Or then you look at it and you're like, okay, this packaging is awful, but the product is great, still might have some toxic stuff. And so I just love that you guys have everything going for you. You've got the branding, you've got the clean, non-toxic ingredients, and it's really, really effective. I absolutely love it. Thank you. And you know, it's really funny that you mentioned the packaging is when we launched 24 years ago, of course, we packaged in glass because it's really important. Glass is the only packaging that's generally regarded as safe by the FDA. So I love to say glass is grass, generally regarded as safe. And I remember trying to promote it to stores and people would say, well, you know, it's a nice product, but your packaging is awful. It's really unattractive. And uh, why can't you just put it in plastic? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, there's so many reasons why I can't put it in plastic. (laughs) You know, starting from environmental pollution, going all the way to, um, you know, the softer the plastic, the greater transference of the product of the ingredients in plastic going into a product. Mm -hmm. And um it was really a battle and it, it almost for years, I would say kind of part of my selling thing because we spend, we put all the money into the ingredients and I would just say, well, you, 
here's here's the product line. You can tell we spent all the money on the ingredients, not the packaging. And then about six or seven years ago, people started saying, oh, you know, you don't have to apologize. It's not that bad. Well, now everybody loves our packaging. And I kid you not, the Ocean Cleanser, our first six products are in the same packaging today as they were 24 no years ago. Way. Yeah. Oh my yeah. Gosh. And now I people say, that. people are like, I love your packaging. And, and I'm thinking, thank you. And then just a little cranky part of me is thinking, well, where were you 24 years ago? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also just a little bit smug, like, yeah. I knew you would eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always I always loved it. I mean, I put tremendous care. It took me three years to come up with the name and design the logo. I mean, I always thought that that minimalistic, simple look, I wanted to create something that was timeless. And yet it took 15 years for people to actually really even to begin to appreciate the beauty of it. Hmm, yeah. Okay, now, and I want to respect your time, so I promise I'll let you go soon. But okay. you have to share your, the way you source your seaweed because it's such a cool story. I am the luckiest woman in the world um, <laughs> because originally I was primarily getting my seaweed, um, you know, from France because I'd grown up in Switzerland. I spoke the language. I knew about the whole seaweed industry in Brittany. And then... Um, when my son um, was in college, he did some school year abroad time in Argentina. And he told me, he, I'll never forget, he called me up one night, you know, on Skype and said, Mom, Buenos Aires, I think it's like Europe in the 70s. And I thought, well, done. Six months later, my husband and I were in Argentina. And we checked into this little boutique hotel called the Home Hotel, one of my all-time favorite hotels in the world. And they had a spa and they had a seaweed bath. So I was in that seaweed bath within four hours of check-in and big pieces of Gigartina algae in the tub. Now, I've been taking powdered seaweed baths from powdered French algae for years. So I was not, this was not my first seaweed bath by any means. And I got out of that bath a half hour later, went up to my room, laid down, and I could just feel my blood pulsating. And I, I couldn't believe the surge of energy. Well, and we had literally just landed after a flight that took two days to get there because of all these delays. I mean, that's a very long, funny story, too. Let me just say American Airlines gave us free tickets to go back again. <laughs> it was that bad. But um, anyway, I, um, I I couldn't believe the seaweed. And I just thought, I have, I have to find the source of this seaweed. And um, I'll never forget, my husband had such terrible jet lag. He was just like, I'm just going to lay in bed. I'm not going to do anything. And I went down to the little um, patio area met some Europeans, and I was out till two in the morning partying, having a great time. <laughs> I mean, I had no jet lag. And I thought, okay, this is for real. What is, wow. where did the seaweed come from? And so the spa director said, well, you know, this lady just kind of shows up and delivers it. So I tracked her down and then she sent me to someone else. And it was a little bit like a scavenger hunt. And then luckily for me, um, it comes from southern, it comes from Patagonia, um, from the very southern tip. 
and luckily for me, the um, it's a family-run company, and um, they have eighty thousand acres of land wow. along the sea, with pretty much nothing on it except for um, maybe nine little ecotourism cabins and some bunkhouses for research scientists. It's probably about the cleanest waters of the world. It's right where the Antarctica current meets the Brazilian current. And it is so rich and dense in seaweed. And through a stroke of luck, the um, grandson who was running the company happened to be in Buenos Aires. And we met up and I asked one of the more stupid questions I've ever asked in my life. I said, well, do you think you have enough seaweed to supply us? And his eyes were twinkling. I'm sure he was just laughing hysterically inside. And he said, why don't you come down to Patagonia? So we came back three months later. And I mean, once I saw it, I mean, we, the seaweed, like our gigartina algae, is literally three to four feet deep on the beach. We collect it by hand. The Andaria algae is an invasive species. We send a diver out in a little Zodiac boat. And we just haul it up. And it's this algae is so, seaweed and algae are interchangeable terms. But what makes this seaweed from Patagonia so special is the purity of the water. Because there is a very inconvenient truth about seaweed in that when it grows in the ocean or the sea, it absorbs the nutrients, the minerals, the trace elements, the pollution, the runoff. It literally almost functions like the lymphatic ocean of the water in that it's purifying. So source is everything with seaweed. And we've been going down pretty much every year to um, drink Malbec wine and harvest seaweed. And um, we love and adore this family, their family business, our family business. And even their, at one point, their 13-year-old daughter came to stay with us for a month to learn English and uh oh oh my gosh it's just the sweetest story it's so wonderful I mean we've just been so fortunate and so lucky and their business is pretty much selling seaweed by the ton I mean by the ton as food source so they export a lot of seaweed to Japan and China and honestly if you're having a piece of sushi that nori could have very easily come from Patagonia, sent to Japan because the Japanese know how to flatten it and use that technology, and then it comes back around. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. That so, so. And I mean, and it is like when you go down there, and also, the first time we went was for five days, and. I'd just been in Patagonia. I mean, I'd been in Buenos Aires, you know, going out because restaurants don't even open until nine or 10 at night. So I was on a pretty fun little party program. And then all of a sudden, here we are in Patagonia. It's like a three hour drive from the closest tiny airport. And I start freaking out because it's so quiet. And I'm telling my husband, I can't handle being here for five days. And he said, you know what? Just relax. I think you're going to love it. And I'm like, no. So here I am thinking I really can't stay this long in Patagonia. Well, after the first two days, I didn't want to leave. Because when you're Mm -hmm. with someplace where there's no electricity and it's quiet 
and there's a million stars at night. It really is, you know, like in Spanish, they call it al fin del mundo. It really is like you're at the end of the world. It's so magical and we're so lucky. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm convinced I'm going. Yes. <laughs> that sounds so fantastic. Well, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for giving us your time. I am so fascinated with your history, your family, the company, and I'm just so incredibly grateful that you gave me a few minutes of your time to come on. Oh, well, you know, thank you. And I so appreciate your questions. They were so thoughtful and you know, I thank you for um, allowing me to be on your podcast. I saw your website. It's beautiful. And the people, the quality of people that you've interviewed, I was really flattered that I get to be on there oh too, because I mean, you have some amazing people on that website. And so thank I love so what much. you're doing. You know, I was actually, you were talking about the cranial, uh, cranial sacral and the cranial work you do. And I was like, oh my gosh, she needs to know about Dr. Danny in Santa Monica. Yes. And I'm going to, I totally need to know about her. And I, when I was looking at your website, I thought I've got to just read this whole thing about her. So thank you. You know, and I, I, I always ask any other resources that you would recommend people, reliable resources that people can go to for more information on skincare, what's in their skincare? Well, you know, I think, I mean, there's a lot of research you can do online, but I'd really like to give a shout out to some of the, um, the um, I was going to call them the green beauty retailers, but now it's, the word is clean beauty retailers, like Credo, like Filane and Detox mm. Market, because they really do their research before they bring a product on board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Credo is setting a set of stand, is establishing a set of very stringent standards. So I think that some of those um, clean beauty retailers are doing a tremendous job, as well as the Environmental Working Group. And I would say probably my favorite ad, ad, advocacy group um, is the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. They're really working, you know, with government in California to make, you know, real changes. So I, I would suggest those for resources. Okay. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on the Crescent Podcast. Have a wonderful rest of your week. You too. Bye. Oh my gosh, I am just completely ogling over how wonderful that interview was with Jennifer. I hope you guys absolutely loved it. It's been about two weeks since I've actually included a magnetic moment challenge at the end of a podcast episode. And so this week, I wanted to challenge you guys to look a little deeper into your skincare products. So I'm going to encourage you to find one of your products. It could be skincare, it could even be personal care. And just scan over the ingredients list. And if there's something that you're not sure what it is, and I'm going to bet that there's a very high chance there are several ingredients you don't know what they are, take a moment to look them up. I'm also going to link a few articles in these show notes that share information on some of the top chemicals to avoid in products and why, what some of the harmful side effects could be of those chemicals. So maybe check out one of those articles, scan through your skincare products just to see and 
right now in this moment, you don't need to throw anything away. You don't need to go out and buy a completely new set of skincare or personal care products. But just knowing and being aware of what you are using, what is in the products you're using is the first step to any of this. Aside from just educating yourself, which I hope this podcast played a role in. And again, if you do, I would love to hear what you guys are finding out, what questions you're coming up with in any of these interviews I do. I'm always able to reach out again and do some kind of Q&A with these incredible individuals. So if you have questions, please send them over. I will sort of continue to gather them up and maybe do a Q&A. With that, I hope everyone has an amazing week ahead of them. Continue to stay strong, rally together, and just really support one another during this time. See you all next week.